Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. All right. Am I on? There we go. As soon as Betsy said that, I realized I had to go to the bathroom. Um, But here I am (laughs) preaching a sermon. Like she said, we're in our second week. We're talking about the life of Abraham. And uh, if you remember last week, Randy talked about an episode where Abram and Sarai went to Egypt because of a famine. Abram got a little scared of Pharaoh. He fudged a few details about Sarai and kind of got themselves in some hot water. And um, I don't know what you got out of it, but what I got of it was a biblical example of how men can kind of create their own problems and then come up with what they think is a brilliant solution that actually just creates more problems. Am I right, ladies? Yeah, there you go. Sorry, men, I'm under that bus too. Just don't ask Jenny about my experience at U of H and how I ended up in the dean's office. Anyway, that's for another time. Um, We're going to pick up in chapter 13, kind of right where Randy left off. So Abram and Sarai, they go back to the land of Canaan. They leave Egypt, and it turns out this is a good idea because they start to do pretty well. They, They get wealthy, and they have cattle and all this other stuff, and they're just growing, and there's actually a little bit of a, of a crowding issue in the land. And we're going to pick up on Genesis 13, 6 through 9, which says, But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. Lot is Abram's nephew, if you'll recall. And uh, so the Canaanites and Perizzites were also living at the land at the time, so it's not just them. There's other people there. So Abram said to Lot, he says, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, uh, for we are close relatives. It's not the whole land before you. Let's part company. And uh, so that basically if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And uh, if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. And this seems completely intuitive, right? Because with family, no matter how much you love them, sometimes you need just a little bit of space. You guys, I'm sure, understand what that's about. Not that kind of space, Jenny. Um, She's a good sport. There it is. Um, All right. So in this event, Abram is showing a little bit of growth in his own faith, right? Because remember, Abram was told by God, hey, go out to this land. I'm going to take care of you. And then a famine hits. And a famine's a big deal. It said it was a severe famine. But Abram just kind of picks up and goes to Egypt because it's green. He kind of just goes on his own. When we see Jacob do that, God blesses him. And so there may be, it could be possible, that Abram just went out ahead of God. And, um, and again, it landed him in a precarious situation. At this point, though, he's standing up there with Lot, and he's looking at the whole land saying, man, you get first pick. So in a way, he's saying, it doesn't matter where I end up because I know God's going to take care of me. So he's showing that he's grown in faith. God has given him that vision, and he's continuing to grow in that, and that's significant. Um, so we'll continue. Genesis 13, 10 through 13 says, So Lot looked around, and he saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, could be a sign that he's looking to kind of take care of himself. So we'll cue in a little bit of ominous music. And then it says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. What? Sodom, ominous music's coming up a little bit. And so Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. And the two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. The ominous music is in full effect. And basically, this is Lot. Um, He is, and I can relate to this. Is it coming up? All right, there it is. It was worth it. I was willing to wait this one out. Um, 
this is not good, right? This is Lot. He looks out and he sees this area that looks lush and it's like, this is going to take care of all of my needs. Um, this is a cat meme and I've included it in the sermon and that was kind of a personal goal. So um, with that, meow, let's see what happens next. Genesis 13, 14 through 17 says, The Lord said to Abram after Lot parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go and walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, and we'll see where that is, where he pitched his tent. There he built an altar to the Lord. So Abram's made the right decision, right? He's kind of walking and taking another step into God's promise, and God is revealing more of his promise to him. This brings us to chapter 14, all right? 14 is a bit of a doozy. It's, um, it, first of all, it introduces us to the first war recorded in the Bible. Now, verses like 1 through 16 explain this war, and it does it and like with all these biblical town names and the tribes' names, and it's just total snoozeville. So I'm going to skip reading that, and if you guys are okay with it, I'm just going to give you my own kind of tour of those first 16 verses. Are you all ready to do that? All right, we're going to jump on uh, Brandon Airways. Buckle your seat. The legroom is great. We don't have snacks. I'm sorry to report that. Here we are in the Middle East. You oil, gas, and military should recognize this. We're going to zoom in. This is the Jordan Plains, okay? Sodom is where Lot ended up and the Oak of Mamre, where Abram, lived up, uh, Abram ended up. Uh, as we zoom in, Lot became a part of kind of the five kingdoms of the plains. These guys were all under a king by the name of Cordelaomer, and they started to revolt. They wanted to do things on their own. Cordelaomer is over here in the kingdoms of the east. We're just lumping them all together. It's him and three other kings. They get word of it. There's a nasty tweet. Something happens, and he decides he's going to respond. So they lay waste, and they start knocking out all of the ites. You know, you've got your Zuzites and your Emites and your Gigabytes and Overbites and Dynamites. All the way through six, all of the ites are there. And the five kings come down to, this is number seven, is basically the, the battle in the Valley of Siddim. And this is the five kings against the four kings. And the five kings that are in with Lot and Zoar and all that, they start falling in tar pits, losing men. It's looking really bad. They retreat, head for the hills, and the four kings run north along this little ridge here. A survivor goes and makes his way to Abram, who's over at the Oak of Mamre. He tells him, Abram pulls a Liam Neeson, I will find you, I will kill you, all the way up past Dan and Damascus. And um, it's where he get, that's where he rescues Lot, brings him back. And this next spot is actually where primarily our story is going to take place. He ends up in the Valley of Shiva, where he encounters a man by the name of Melchizedek and somebody else, uh, King Bera, who is the king of Sodom. And uh, so that little area is where we're talking about. That gets us to Genesis 14. We'll start on verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Cordelaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. That's the king's valley. That was that little polygon. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. He blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of the heaven and the earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek is a very mysterious figure, okay? Um, and he's somebody that there is, essentially there's stacks and stacks of, of theological commentary and discussion, and, and it's covering over, you know, thousands of years. And I'm going to try to break it down in about ten minutes, and this is going to be a little bit of a fire hose moment, but I promise I'll take a few breaths 
in between the things that we're going to get into. So this is essentially what we can kind of know about Melchizedek. I call this a list of conversation starters. Um, if you're at a party and it's a really bad party and you just need something to talk about, you can be like, hey, Melchizedek. So in Genesis 14, here's some of the stuff we can get from there. His name means righteousness, king of righteousness. This is explicitly stated in Hebrews 7, um, but my guess was that if you knew the original language, his, na his name kind of literally sounded like that. So I'm just going to say we knew that from 14, even though we'll know it one way or another. Uh, his kingdom is Salem, related to the word shalom, which means peace. So he is the king of righteousness. He is the king over the kingdom of peace. He brings out bread and wine, and that's significant to us. Um, what we think is happening in this story is that he is there ready to nourish the battle-worn, weary travelers. Okay, so he's a priest coming out to meet their needs. And um, the fact that he is a king and a priest is also a big deal. He is one of a kind in this way. Okay, uh, first I want to say we shouldn't miss the fact that after we see the first war in the Bible, we also see the first priest. Okay. We'll let that sink in for a second because this says something. This is, it's kind of a comforting thing. The reality is we live in a sinful world, but God is providing something for us to answer that. Uh, so as a king and a priest, he's unique because you could be a king or a priest, but we never see that really overlap except for in Melchizedek. Some people think that, uh, that David was a priest, but he was more priestly. And there's other examples in the Bible where somebody who was a king tried to act as a priest and they got leprosy or they lost their kingdom or whatever. Even David himself wasn't, he, he was sent priest to go and do the high priest things. So Melchizedek is really unique in that way. Uh, the other thing is he blesses Abram. This is significant because in 1213, on 12.3, uh, we see that, that God is going to bless those who bless Abram, and he's going to curse those who curse Abram. And there's not a whole lot of people that explicit, like, explicitly bless Abram, and uh, so Melchizedek becomes kind of unique in that way. Also, we can know that Abram gave him a tithe, which is significant, and we'll talk about that in just a second. We're going to get into Psalm 110. Um, and again, this one's kind of a, a, a wild one because it's a psalm. There's really... The main thing out of this is his priesthood. This is the priesthood of Melchizedek is archetypal for the Messiah. And it, it, it does so in this way. The first verse of 110 uh, basically says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and until I make the enemies a footstool under your feet. That's a verse that has conquering, victory kind of stuff all wrapped up in it. In verse 4, in verse four it says, The Lord has sworn by an oath that you will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we're kind of holding these two things side by side, and there's other stuff in there that, that kind of fills that out. But it's important for us to kind of know or get this sense that Abram at this point, think about it, he has been kind of like a conqueror, right? Because he went up there and he conquered all these kings that just wiped out like 10 or 11 different cities. Um, he's also a bit of a rescuer, a redeemer, a deliverer, right? because he brought Lot and the people back. So in a way, there's kind of a parallel happening where even though Abram wasn't a king or a priest, he had those kinds of things working in his life. And so the psalmist, David, takes that, that kind of action of king and priest, and he sticks it under this actual king-priest, Melchizedek, and then he creates this idea of a Messiah who will come in the order of Melchizedek. Does that kind of... Make some sense a little bit? Maybe not. It's really silent. Okay, uh, Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 relies on this, okay? 
essentially, it says um, Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Now, I'll try to keep this brief, but the, the, the circulating conversation that we can get from the Dead Sea Scrolls and from uh, the Josephus who wrote the Antiquities of the Jews and the War on the Jews and different other people were basically saying that Melchizedek was supernatural in various ways. They were saying he was so much more than human. We think he was like an angel. We think he's going to the Messiah, all these different things. And one of the ideas is that they're thinking that because in the Bible or in the Torah, which is the, the Jewish Bible, there was no record of his birth or death. People that were important, even people that didn't seem all that important, usually got a mention of whether they were born or where they died, if they had a genealogy. Melchizedek has none of that. And so this hermeneutic principle comes into play that says, if it's not written in the Torah, it didn't happen in the world. And so they think that's being applied to Melchizedek. Basically, they didn't write it because it didn't happen. He was never born, he never died, he always just is. And so the author of Hebrews says, in a way, he resembles the Son of God because he was without genealogy. He kind of lived on forever. He'll be a priest forever. Um, so the, the writer of Hebrews is addressing a group of Jewish Christians, people who were Jewish and now they're Christian, but they're struggling, right? Because Jesus is becoming kind of concerning for them. Jesus is not enough. They want to take control of their old salvation. They're wanting to go back to the Old Testament way, the Levitical priesthood where there's sacrifices and all this other stuff. And they're saying, the priests that do this are from the tribe of, of Levi, and Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. So he can't be our high priest. He can't be, do the sacrifices. We want to go back to the old, because again, they want that control. And he's saying, that's not the way. That's the old way that is insufficient. And in fact, he compares a lot of the Old Testament stuff to Jesus, and he says, next to Jesus, these things are insufficient except for Melchizedek. And this is where the whole he's supernatural thing kind of comes in. The author essentially acknowledges the circulating ideas of who Melchizedek is and says, hey, look, Melchizedek, he was awesome, right? And then they'd be like, well, yeah, yeah, he was cool. And he'd be like, well, he was so awesome, in fact. You might say that he was more awesome than Abraham, who was the father of our very own faith. I mean, that guy's awesome, but Melchizedek is really awesome. We think that Melchizedek, in a way, is superior to Abraham because Abram paid a tithe to him, and that shows kind of a superiority thing. Also, he blessed Abraham, and so that shows that Melchizedek is over Abraham. So he's really finding that common ground in who Melchizedek is. And he says, um, you know, in a way, too, if he was over Abraham, if he was superior, then he was also superior to all of the Old Testament priests. Okay? Can I go with me here for a second? Abram gives a tithe to Melchizedek. In Abram's body, the genes are within his genes, so to speak. Uh, the, the Levi and all of these other priests that come out are with him. This, this author basically makes an argument that all of his grandsons and everything also paid a tithe. They also were blessed by Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is also all of, all of these other priests that you think are so great. And um, so he builds Melchizedek up. He kind of brings down Abram in the priesthood. And then he says, but the thing that supersedes all of that is Jesus. Jesus is the one that comes in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was, died and was resurrected, so he lives forever. He doesn't have to be from the tribe of Levi. He can be from the tribe of Judah because he comes in the order of Melchizedek. And kind of the sealing deal on this is to say that if the Levitical priesthood was so good, then the author who wrote Psalm 110, which came after the law was established, he would have said that the priest was going to come in the order of Aaron, but he didn't. He said it was going to come in the order of Melchizedek. 
because he knew that that whole system was broken, and that is who Jesus is, and he basically argues for Jesus' authority and superiority over all of it, that he can give himself as a sacrifice, that he can establish the covenant. I know it's a lot to take in, but I think Hebrews 7, 26 through 28 says it really well. Uh, Such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed their sins once and for all when he offered himself. The law appoints as high priest men in all of their weakness. But the oath which came after the law, that's the thing where it says in 110, the Lord swears by an oath, you should be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. So he kind of does this like one, two, three, bam, Jesus is it deal. Um, And what he's doing is this, that later biblical writers read out of the Old Testament the fullness of their meaning. Not just what is this saying, but what is this saying about Christ? And so Melchizedek in a way was was kind of a foreshadow for Christ. He was a a type of Christ. He was kind of an office existing for Christ. So let's go back to that moment where Abraham and or he's Abram at this point, is standing before Melchizedek, okay, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, and he's standing before Sodom, the, the king of Sodom, King Bera. It says uh, in 14, 18 through 20, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom with a raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to those who went with me, to Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So Abram, in short, tithes to Melchizedek, and he rejects the offer of King Bera. This is probably a good idea. Let's look at what kind of person King Bera is. Imagine he's sitting across the table and you're like interviewing King Bera. Okay, let's see what kind of guy he is. Okay, his name means with evil, or it's translated as son of evil. Now that's like one mark against him, right? Okay, he's also the ruler of a notoriously sinful city. Ugh, things aren't looking so good, King Bera. And also, he's not victorious in the last battle. We don't want a king who's not victorious. You don't want anything to do with that. He's a loser. He says he's not good with tar, but these other kings did just fine in the tar pits. He also turned on his own king, right? He kind of led this revolt against the king, and that's a big deal. Loyalty is a big deal. And so, um, essentially, I kind of look at him as this. This is King Bera, right? He's not a good person, but he's trying to, like, woo Abram over. Can I have a hug? That's kind of, yeah. So, that's King Bera in a nutshell. And uh, there it is. Abram resists, and rightly so. And I think this is where you and I can begin to kind of start taking some stuff out of the story and applying it to our own lives. Every single one of us is engaged in battle on a daily basis. We're engaged in spiritual warfare. Some of us are engaged in actual fighting. We've got problems. We've got emotional things going on. Family, we're worn down. And at any given moment, we are confronted by two kingdoms, right? The kingdom of evil and the kingdom of righteousness. And we have to make a choice. On the one hand, the kingdom of evil is that place that you can go, in a sense. It's when the world comes to you and says, hey, I understand that you don't feel good. Hey, I know that you're tired, but let me give you this. Let me show you what you can look at. Let me tell you what you can take in, drink, what you can be a part of. Let me tell you what you can say to somebody to make them feel low and make yourself feel higher. Those are the things that are offered to us by the world, by Satan, in a sense. 
that are temporary and they're destructive. They don't mean anything. The kind of things that we want to say, I don't want anything to do with that. So we find ourselves in a place where sometimes we engage with things, we accept things from this king bearer, so to speak, that eats at our soul, it pulls at us. And I think it's interesting, too, that, that king bearer says, look, you keep all of the stuff, you keep all of the spoils, let me have the people. Isn't it like Satan to say, I would give anything for a piece of your heart? I would give anything for a piece of your soul. I just want you. I don't care what you take. I just want you. Now look to your king of righteousness, your king of peace, who when you come back and you're worn out, he stands there with bread and wine ready to bless you, ready to pour into you, ready to nourish you on a spiritual level. We have a choice to make, and it really does come down to a choice. When I was talking to Jenny about this, she asked a great question, and that was, you know, essentially what leads Abram to make this decision? And we know it's the right thing to choose to basically align ourselves with, with King Melchizedek, or Jesus is what we'd say, to align ourselves with the King of Peace and Righteousness. We know it's right, but what drives us to do that? And I think it's that Abram caught the vision. God is showing Abram the promise, saying, this is what your life can look like. This is what I have for you. This is what I'm going to provide for you. This is wholeness. And Abram is catching the vision, and he's gotten in the way of that vision enough, and he knows what that feels like, and he knows how lousy that feels, and he doesn't want to do that again. So he says, not even a thread from your sandal. I don't want anything to do with you. Because he knows what God has, and he's buying into that vision. So the next question might be, well, Brandon, I don't know what God's vision is for my life. I don't know what it is that he's telling me to do. It'd be great if he came in and gave me this kind of explicit promise. But everything just kind of feels cloudy right now. I don't have any direction. You're not alone in that. But what I do believe, as nice as it would be to have stuff completely spelled out, I believe that God has given each one of us a vision. I think that maybe he's given you an idea of who you can be. The person that you are when you're whole, when you're complete, the person that you are when you don't have addiction, the person that you are when you're, maybe you're not depressed, when you're not dealing with stuff, when you're not angry at people, when you're not getting zapped by the world. That person or the person that you want to be and the person you are right now overlap the good. The best way to frame that, and this is brilliant, this is another one of Jenny's things, was to kind of look at it in terms of the fruits of the Spirit. We're going to put those up. Whatever it is that God is going to do in your life, whatever his vision is for your life, it's going to involve, well, it's going to at least start with one of these things. We know it's going to involve all of them, right? So imagine what would your life look like if you had a little more love? What would your life look like if you had a little more patience, a little more self-control? I'm a parent. Patience is kind of a hard thing for me sometimes. Self-control is a hard thing because I'm a guy. Love, joy. Joy is really hard in a world where we get battered with news. It's depressing. So there's one thing that right here, right now, that you and I can grab a hold of and say, this is the beginning of God's promise for my life. This is the thing that I'm going to circle and I'm going to take with me. And when I feel worn out and tired, and that voice comes in and says, you don't need that stuff. Here's what I got. You can say, no, I'm with the king of righteousness. I'm with Christ Jesus. And that's the final important piece of this. We're not pushing this fruit out. We're not doing this on our own. This isn't an acts thing. Galatians 5, where this comes from, says, and it's verse 24, says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, those who have aligned themselves with the kingdom of righteousness and peace. And yes, 
I'm sorry to say it does require a sacrifice. Yes, there's things we're going to have to say no to. Yes, we're going to have to pour ourselves into the person of Christ, into the church, into one another. But it's worth it. And we won't get into it because I'm sure we'll cover it next week. But chapter 15 opens up because Abram has made this decision to align himself with the kingdom of righteousness. It opens up with basically do not be afraid. And God once again shows him more of his promise. So when that moment comes and you're saying, I'm working on gentleness, I just really, I just feel like I'm harsh on people. I want to be able to speak to them in a loving and gentle way. And you feel that rise to just make it sting. And you say no to that. I pray that in that moment you hear God saying, do not fear. Because he's willing to show you even more of what that looks like. Even more of who you're supposed to be. Let's pray. God, you have called us to choose. Do we choose the kingdom of evil or the kingdom of righteousness? And even though our heads know what the right answer is, God, our hearts are struggling because sometimes it just feels good. But the reality is you have something so much better for us that you can pour into us, that you can lead us to becoming the people that you have called us to be, that we can be joyful, that we can be people who understand peace as we rest in you, God, that we can have self-control, that the person that we are and the person that we are when nobody's looking is the same person, God, that we can have these things and that we can step in to the calling that you've called us to. I pray that over these people as they begin on that, as some of them maybe felt like there was a word that was just screaming at them that when evil shows up and tries to confuse them and take that away, that they resist it. I pray that you can pour into them and they can hear your voice. It's in your name. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to be out there if you all want to say hi or anything. We'll have people down here praying. And um, don't forget there's groups and all of that. Last uh, service, they played a song that had the opening words was like, I'm so confused. And so hopefully none of you all are, are so confused at this point. But I know it was a lot. Thank you all very much. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.